Well, let's continue to kind of as we head towards a conclusion of our series on covenant theology. Let's pick up where we left off last week and I'm going to do a brief recap actually the last few weeks and kind of let you guys know where we're heading from here. Um, I'm essentially, since some of you are uh, leaving for the summer, I'm going to essentially kind of really give you the Reformed Baptist thesis today. Um, talk a little bit, of course, we, we, as we began last week, talking about the difference between our beliefs and that of the Presbyterians, our confession versus the Westminster Confession. I really just kind of give you that today, and I think I'll probably just take a week or two, uh, the next two weeks, to circle back and look more specifically at the historical covenants. I think I might spend a week on the Noahic Covenant because that often doesn't get attention and it's not really related to our topic, so it's kind of like a, a parenthesis or um, you know, excursus here. But I want to spend a week on it to give you a few things, because it really informs our view of culture, and I think that might be an interesting topic. So it's kind of off topic, but anyway. So that's what I'd like to do in the next few weeks, Lord willing. But to recap where we've come from, covenant theology, our argument has consistently been that through the covenants and the system of covenant theology, we really see the framework of God's redemption. And a few weeks ago, I think three weeks ago, we considered the covenant of redemption as like the eternal blueprint for our redemption. It is that covenant in between members of the Trinity in eternity, uh, which of course is played out in human history in the covenants. And then last week, or two weeks ago, we talked about the covenant of works and how God in the creation of the world set up a covenant of works with Adam as a federal head. And although he broke that with his disobedience, it set the stage for the obedience of the second Adam. And so the covenant of works, again, gives us the framework of God's redemption. We see we can interpret the work of Christ in light of Adam and understand exactly what he's doing and why in his earthly life. Last week, we began to talk about the covenant of grace. What I argued is that the covenant of grace is a maybe a, a theological term. In other words, it is a way of speaking about the one covenant through which all believers in all history are saved. We thought about this in relation to different views of dispensationalism. would argue that salvation under the Old Testament was different than salvation in the New Testament. That they were saved by works, were saved by faith, um, some things of that nature. But covenant of grace really gets at the heart of how all believers are saved in the same way, and they're saved by the same covenant as well, which I've argued is the new covenant. It first appears in the promise of Genesis 3.15. There is a seed of the woman who is coming who will crush the serpent's head. But where we differ, where we depart at this point from the Westminster Confession and from Presbyterianism is 
How does this covenant of grace enter history? That's what we talked about last week. Sorry. The Westminster Confession of Faith argues that the covenant of grace is administered via the historical covenants. There is one covenant with various administrations. The Abrahamic covenant, the Mosaic covenant were but old administrations of the same covenant of grace. That's what they argue. But we, our confession says, the covenant of grace is revealed in the historical covenants, but concluded and consummated in the new covenant. That's the difference. I'm going to break that down today. There's a difference between administering it and promising and revealing it. So that's where we're picking up. And that's what I want to continue to explore, this administration verse revealed. And, um, of course, I want to defend revealed from Scripture. So if you have your Bibles, get them ready. We're going to look at four or five passages. I'm going to ask for some volunteers. But from here, we're going to look at its relation to the historical covenants. We're not going to get to this today. So um, I think probably two weeks uh, we'll conclude this series. But I'm going to circle back around and look at these covenants briefly and show how the new covenant is promised, typified, and revealed in them before being consummated in the new covenant. All right, so I'm going to give you kind of a thesis, and then I'm going to open up questions. And if you don't have any, we're going to look at Scripture passages that defend my thesis. That's, that's what we're doing. Reformed Baptist thesis. Coming back again to this kind of central verse in our study, Titus 1, 2, and 3. Paul opens and says, God who never lies promised, he's talking about eternal life, before the ages began. And we considered how this is a covenant of redemption. He made a promise before the ages of eternal life to himself, the various uh, three members of the Trinity. But Paul then continues and says, and at the proper time manifested in his word. And eventually he concludes by saying through the preaching of the gospel. This thesis is that the covenant of redemption is manifested in his word God used the historical covenants to manifest this eternal plan of redemption. That's the Reformed Baptist thesis here. Plan of redemption, eternal life, manifested in His Word, specifically for our our purposes today, through the historical covenants. Put it this way. God uses, or used, the historical covenants in Scripture, covenant with Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, to promise, to typify and foreshadow, and to prepare for the accomplishment of the covenant of grace. The historical covenants 
They promise the covenant of grace, they foreshadow it, and they make preparations for it to actually enter human history and be accomplished. What does that mean? Promise. I will be your God, you shall be my people. Tells that to Abraham. It appears all throughout the Old Testament, appears in the prophets in regards to the New. It appears in the book of Revelation, at the end of Revelation, at the consummation. This is the promise that God makes in the Abrahamic covenant. But the reality of that isn't brought about until the accomplishment of the covenant of grace. Typify, foreshadow. So you understand what I mean by that? Typology, foreshadowing, sacrifices, an animal sacrifice foreshadows or typifies the sacrifice of Jesus Christ as the Lamb of God. The temple, the physical structure, typifies and points to the reality which is God dwelling in, his peop- in the midst of His people. Old Testament, even things like the cleanliness laws, right? You're defiled by touching a dead animal. That's just, or, or you have leprosy and you're defiled. You can't enter the temple and worship God because it's meant to typify how sin hinders us from entering God's presence. So the historical covenants typify and foreshadow realities of the covenant of grace. In fact, this is why right here, I will be your God, you shall be my people. Why God adopted a nation, theocratic, ethnic people. I'm getting ahead of myself. I'm really jumping into the baptism debate at this point. But the adoption of Israel, which included believers and unbelievers alike, everyone who was born of the seed of Abraham, the adoption of that into the Abrahamic covenant is typical foreshadowing not the reality but it points to the reality of the covenant of grace God adopting the children of God not the children of Abraham not the children born of the flesh but the children born of the spirit I'm going to move quickly before there are any questions on that (laughs) prepare God laid the groundwork in the nation of Israel gave the law the genealogy and everything to prepare for the Messiah and the people of the the accomplishment of the covenant of grace. How would we know when the Messiah came, when He appeared on human history? Well, He would walk in full obedience to the law. He would come from the seed of Abraham, the seed of David. He would be born under the law of national Israel. All this prepared for the coming of Jesus Christ. So the historical covenants, these are three broad ways in which they prepare us. It sets the stage upon which the play of the covenant of grace will take place. So given this, how was someone in the Old Testament saved? I 
That's what a Presbyterian would say to us in regards to our position. You're saying that the covenants are not administrations of the covenant of grace. And if the covenant of grace is the only way in which people anywhere, anytime is saved, then how can someone be saved if the Abrahamic and the Mosaic is not a covenant of grace? Mark? Yes, absolutely. You're tracking with me. Old Testament Israelites were called to see the reality behind that promise in the types and the shadows and trust in the substance of what those things pointed to. That's why Moses says, circumcise your hearts. See the reality of what is typified by circumcision and believe what these things point to. Absolutely. Jesus says that Abraham saw my day and rejoiced. He saw the promise of his seed and circumcision and all of that. He saw the reality of what those things pointed to. And he trusted in Christ. But let me be more specific with this. The Old Testament Israelites, Old Testament anyone we're not saved by virtue of the historical covenants. The covenant that God made with Abraham did not promise. It did not include in the terms forgiveness of sins, eternal life, the gift of the Spirit. Neither did the covenant with Moses, the Mosaic covenant, the law, the giving of the law at Sinai. It did not provide the promises of the covenant of grace. It only typified and pointed towards them. Did not have salvific terms. It was a play on the stage of human history that was acted out to demonstrate eternal realities. Does that make sense? It's like a play modeling a real-life event. Well, of course for us it's like a play because we're on the other side of the person's play. Hey, we're looking back on the line. But if you're standing in line, it looks different. It does. Yes. Yeah. Which is why it's such a blessing to be on this side of the line. It's the new and better covenant. And that's why they also sought to establish their own righteousness as well. 
even though there were many things like sacrifices, cleanliness, everything that pointed them to, hey, you really can't do this. They still tried to establish because, yeah. So that's one of the blessings of the New Covenant, the full revelation of the, of the, of, sure. of the Gospel. So again, the historical covenants themselves were not administrations of the covenant of grace. That's, that's what I'm arguing right here. We can't properly say that it's an administration of the covenant of grace like the Westminster Confession does because there were no salvific terms. And they were not saved by virtue of those covenants. So, in this sense, the covenant of grace being revealed, to summarize, there is one covenant of grace revealed from the fall in a progressive way, so think of steps leading up to a summit, until its full revelation and conclusion in the new covenant. And that the new covenant in Christ's blood is formally and properly the covenant of grace. Again, Westminster Confession. The old covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace. We're saying, no, the new covenant is the covenant of grace. Because it's the only covenant by which anybody is saved. And it's called the everlasting covenant in the book of Hebrews. Something I'm going to defend here in just a minute. So again, to circle back around, I've said this already, but the covenants, the historical covenants serve to announce and promise and typify, typify the covenant of grace, but they all lack solemn confirmation and establishment by the blood of the only sacrifice. They could only point to what is coming. They could not in themselves grant what was promised. Again, I'm summarizing here, so I'm repeating what I've just said. But Therefore, every believer of all times is saved by virtue of the new covenant in Christ's blood. I want to argue, and um, I, I've said this already, but just to clarify, I put this in this morning as I was reading through it. I'm like, I better put a parenthesis in here just to clarify this in case someone has questions. The covenant of grace was in force. It was active in the Old Testament. But the New Testament always calls it a promise, not a covenant. And it was active in promissory form. It wasn't actually brought into human history until the New Covenant. That's what I'm saying. The Old Testament covenants could promise, but could and did not in themselves accomplish what was promised. So with that, I'm going to defend that from some scripture, and I'm going to have to move quickly, but do you guys have questions or comments? And Again, I know if you're thinking, all right, I've been here for this series, and this is getting a little confusing. I'm giving the thesis now, and I'm going to, in the next two weeks, come back and show this from the actual historical covenant. So just a plea to come back next week if you have those types of questions. But any questions or clarification on what I've said so far before we look at Scripture? So in Westminster, first of all, this is all foreshadowing Christ, and that seems to be what you're saying. Yes. I'm not seeing a difference between saying all these things foreshadow Christ and what you just said. Yes. You're right. Okay. 
um, they would agree in some sense. But again, if you look at chapter 7, they argue that this covenant was differently administered. And actually at the end of 7.6 it says there's not two covenants of grace but one and the same under various dispensations. Where this comes into play, I'm going to get to this, but where this comes into play is because if they deny that the old covenant is administration of the covenant of grace, they lose their grounds for infant baptism because as I'm going to get to, The structure of the covenant of grace, the way of administering it, stays the same from covenant to covenant for them. If B.G. Uh, uh, Warfield, B.B. Warfield said it this way, um, if God has included children in the covenant and has nowhere rescinded this, how can we now kick them out in the new covenant? That's the logic because the covenant of grace is, the Abrahamic is a covenant of grace, and children were included in that, and now we're in the covenant of grace in the new covenant, just a different administration, then if God hasn't changed the terms, then who are we to change the terms because the one covenant stays the same? And I'll explain that more after we hit some uh, scripture passages. We're going to have to move quickly here. Um, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read some of these on the screen uh, just to move quickly. I'm going to have someone else look up the other ones, but I'm going to try to defend my thesis here. Hebrews 10, 1 through 4. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come, instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The law is a shadow instead of the true form of these realities. You see that, right? Old Testament shadow, New Testament reality. And because of it, the sacrifices can never take away sins. Taking away the forgiveness of sins is a promise, is a term, is, a, is the substance of the covenant of grace. So the law cannot accomplish the covenant of grace. I'm going to need someone to read this one. Romans 4, 21 through 25. If you've got it, just speak up loud and clear. Uh, I'm sorry. Sorry to interrupt. 
Um, three, three twenty-one through twenty-five. <laughs> My mistake. Thank you. Talking about justification, Paul is talking, you know, the law, its purpose to reveal sin, leading to justification. But my purpose in citing this verse is to show, is to focus in on this statement, because in his divine forbearance, God passed over former sins. Old Testament saints did not properly, properly, have their sins forgiven by means of any of the old covenants. Their sins were passed over. Yes, they experienced all the blessings of the covenant of grace. Well, not all of them. They did not. Well, okay. (laughs) Yes, they experienced the blessings of the covenant of grace. Upon death, they entered the presence of God. Not because their sins have been paid for. Christ hasn't come, hadn't come yet. But God passed over them in light of what was coming. Christ's death is what secured their salvation, ultimately. See that? The old covenants did not accomplish the forgiveness of sins. Christ did. God passed over sins until the proper time. All right, seven, Hebrews 7, 11 through 24. This is kind of a long passage. Um, if someone would please read that. I'm going to go line by line here, but Hebrews 7, 11 through 24. Trent? Keep going through 24.
are peace forever. This makes Jesus the guarantor, the guarantor of a better covenant. The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office, but he holds the priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Thank you. Now, if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, the implication is it wasn't. A new priest was needed. That's the argument that he's making. And then it introduces, he introduces Jesus. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is tied to the covenant of redemption. We looked at this three weeks ago. This quotation, Old Testament quotation, happened before the incarnation in eternity. God told the Son, God the Father told the Son, you're a priest forever. I'm, I'm Mark? confused. Is the, word after, is the word after there supposed to mean in the same vein as the order of Melchizedek or your, your order as a, a priesthood comes after the order of Melchizedek? Um, after in the sense of um, what's the best way to put this? Not after in time, if that's what you're asking. No. In the same vein. In the same vein, yes. <laughs> Just as Melchizedek was a priest, according to that particular line, you are as well. He's doing this in contrast to the Levitical priests, because to be a priest in, under the Mosaic law, you had to be born of the tribe of Levi. And Jesus was born of the tribe of Judah. On the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of its weakness and uselessness. The law made nothing perfect. It was weak. It was useless to accomplish the purposes of the covenant of grace. And thus, a better hope is now introduced. This makes Jesus the guarantor of a better covenant. This is an entirely different priesthood. It's not connected to the Mosaic law and the Levitical priesthood and the line and, and the rules and laws for that line at all. And it's an entirely different covenant as well. That's my argument is obviously aimed at the one covenant, multiple administrations how the Old Covenant was the covenant of grace, as the Westminster Confession argues. I'm saying different priesthood, different line, different promises, better hope, entirely different covenant. Let's continue on. I'm going to read this one. Hebrews 8, 3 through 6. For every priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it is necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth... He would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. These serve as a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, saying, See that you make everything according to the pattern that was shown you on the mountain. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. Again, kind of recapping what I've already said, but Mosaic law, the temple, copy and shadow of heavenly things. 
as opposed to the reality. This is God revealing something. I'm going to show you with this earthly stuff what's true in heaven. The old covenant is shadowy and promissory, but the new is better, and it has better promises. Moving quickly. 1 Timothy 2.5 There is one God, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Who's the mediator of the Abrahamic covenant? Abraham. Who's the mediator of the Mosaic covenant? Moses. Who's the mediator of the Davidic covenant? Here's a hint. It's David. Who is the mediator of the new covenant? The man, Christ Jesus. The covenants had different mediators. So you can't call it a covenant of grace. Continue on. I keep coming back to this one too because this is really our thesis in a nutshell. You were at that time separated from Christ, Paul says in Ephesians 2.12. Talking to Gentiles, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenants of promise. Multiple covenants, plural. Singular promise, one. And there is a contrast there. Promise is not the same as fulfillment. Promise is not the same as reality. Multiple covenants serving one promise. But the blood of Christ is the means by which that promise was fulfilled. And that comes in the new covenant. This is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, Jesus says. Um, Jeremiah 31, 30, 31-34, can I have someone read that quickly? We've got, oh man, wow. Alright, I'm going to read it really quickly. It's very familiar to you all, it shouldn't be anything new. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. I will be their God. They shall be my people. And no longer shall one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity. I will remember their sin no more. Here, just a couple of obvious points. This is future. The days are coming. It's not here yet, Israel. Days are coming when there's a new covenant, and it's going to be different than the covenant that's enacted right now, the one that you broke. And this is what that new covenant is going to look like. By my spirit, I'm going to put my law within you. By my spirit and the accomplishment of the death of Christ, I will forgive your sins. All of those in that covenant will know me. 
which is different from believers and their children. These are aspects, promises, and realities of the new covenant, the covenant of grace, not the old. So, conclusion. I've really beat this dead horse. He beat this horse to death, but the historical covenants can't be properly called administrations of the covenant of grace. Ergo, we cannot, should not, equate membership in these old covenants with membership in the covenant of grace, and that is a foundation for infant baptism. I'm going to break that down quickly here. Let me show you this chart right here. Oh, hold on. Where am I at? Okay. Compare this right here with administered. The historical covenants not only revealed, but they actually administered the covenant of grace. The Westminster Confession says, The old covenants are simply older versions of the same covenant. There is one in the same covenant of grace under various dispensations. Thus, given this... Who the covenant is administered to? Who it's promised to? Who is included in it? Who's given this covenant of grace? Also serves as a standard of covenant membership in the new. It is believers and their children. Because that's what God promised to Abraham. And if we're in the same covenant that God made with Abraham, then believers and their children, and for some reason they don't limit it to just males, because that's what Abraham was limited to, but... That's why we give baptism to our children because it's the same covenant and God administers it the same way. Forgive me if I'm moving quickly. But this entails an internal versus external distinction in their system. One can be a covenant member receiving the administration and yet not really be a true member of the covenant. Now we'll argue vehemently that baptism doesn't save, and baptism isn't a sign that they are saved, but they treat them, though, as if they are saved, because of this distinction will allow them to say, you can be a member of the administration of it, but not a member of it substantially. And this is because an Israelite male was circumcised, and receive the benefits of the Old Covenant, worship, law, the promises, regardless of whether they had true faith or not. This external physical administration, giving them outward benefits in the covenant through their birth and their, who their parents are, regardless of whether they had faith, that way of doing things continues in the new for them. That makes sense? Now for you computer science geeks, no offense by that. I'm going to take five more minutes here, by the way. If you have questions, you better get them in. This is a chart. I didn't put this together. My friend Stan Reeves did. Um, he modified it from this great book, Distinctives of Reformed Baptist Covenant Theology by Pascal Deneau. But this is the Westminster Confession, or the, uh, the view of administration. You have the old... All right, so here you have the covenant of works, it being broken, 
and the promise of the new covenant, promise of the Messiah here in Genesis 3.15. And from that, you have these historical covenants with an external and internal group. God gives the benefits of the covenant by birth. But you only really enter into its substance by faith. Only the elect. And here in John 19.30, it is finished. They see that continuing into the new as well. You're given the benefit by baptism because you're born of believers. But only the true faithful receive the substance. Now compare that with our view. Same thing. Covenant works, broken, promise. And you have this progressively revealed covenant of grace until John 19.30. And from here, all those who were given the administration, not in the sense of everyone who's baptized is saved. Not in that sense at all. But in the sense that all of those who receive the benefits of the covenant of grace, there are no benefits of the covenant of grace that come, excuse me, that are external in any sense. What does the covenant of grace promise? We saw it in Jeremiah 31. The Spirit, the law, forgiveness of sins. So you did have people who were in covenant with God externally in the Old Covenant, but in the New Covenant, that changes. So there, there they are compared if you want to see them side by side. It's revealed and then it's sealed as opposed to the same system that governed Israel in the Old Testament governs the New, New Testament as well in the Pedobathus scheme. <sighs> Farther steps. That's what our confession says. It says this promise was revealed by farther steps. What they mean by that is that the Messiah and the mediator of the new covenant of the of the covenant of grace would be the seed of the woman. There's a promise to you and your seed. But then it's narrowed. It's narrowed to the seed of Noah. And then it's narrowed again. The promise to you and your children, comes to Abraham. It's now the seed of Abraham. But then it's narrowed again. David, one of your sons, will sit on my throne. His kingdom will have no end. In the Davidic covenant, the seed of the woman, this promise to you and your children, is narrowed even further. And then finally, of course, it is revealed as born as Jesus Christ. This is why the promises in the Old Testament come to children of Israel. Because it points to this one. Infant baptism denies, essentially, they they would admit this, but they 
act as if this promise to children continues. It's acting as if the Messiah hasn't come. Because the promises to your children, the giving of circumcision, the inclusion of children in the covenants, promised, revealed, and anticipated Jesus Christ, and thus it ended with Him. Which is why our conviction is it is improper to give baptism to infants. All right. I tend to do this a lot lately, unfortunately. Two weeks. I'm going to circle back around to the Noahic Covenant, and it's not really related to this thesis, but it's got some really interesting facts about common grace, cult, and culture. Uh, I think you'll enjoy it. But then I'm going to kind of summarize briefly in one week the Abrahamic, Mosaic, Davidic, and show how those promised the Messiah and then uh, anticipated, revealed, and prepared for the accomplishment of the covenant of grace. Are there any questions uh, or comments that you can take two minutes on? Let me just say as well, to tackle the issues between the Westminster Confession and the London Baptist Confession legitimately needs three or four weeks at least. And to tackle the issue of infant baptism versus credo baptism probably needs 10 to 12 weeks. So I'm not acting like this seals the deal and this is, this is it and, you're, and, and anyone who doesn't embrace my view is foolish. I'm not acting like that at all. I, I wanted to give the thesis just so you know what we believe. And if you have questions and you want to work through this, I can point you to some other material. I can walk through it with you as well. Uh, but this isn't the end of the argument. So.